He who saves one life saves the world entire. And the most important life to save is your own. After all, it's the place where you have the most power. So join shadow worker and trauma therapist Laura Giles each week on It's Not You, It's Me. We'll uncover what's in shadow and learn the things you need so you can heal yourself, grow yourself, know yourself, love yourself, be yourself, and share yourself. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, it's time to drop the self-sabotage and limiting beliefs. A healthy, abundant, connected life is an option. Choose it. Subscribe. And let's start manifesting it. If someone asked me what's the ultimate hack for letting go, I would say spiritual travel every single time. That's been my passion for over 20 years. And in today's podcast, I'm going to give you the inside track on how spiritual travel can help you let go and what to do once you've let go. But first, it's the season of gratitude. And I want to pause to say thanks to Lonvi for the great podcast review. So reviews are the lifeblood of a podcast. It helps the ranking so that more people can find me. So they're very much appreciated. If you want to help out, you can go to the podcast website at letitgonow.net and hit the review button at the bottom of the page. I've also added a nifty little feature that allows you to comment on the podcast at the very moment that something provokes the comment. So it's an audio comment. For example, if I say something you agree with, don't agree with, or want to add a perspective that I didn't touch on, if you go to the show notes, you'll see a link that says, leave me a comment, hit that, and that's going to take you to my gala's page where you can do that. I prefer to wait conversation, don't you? So I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'll listen to them all. And I believe that life happens for you, not to you, and everything in my life has lined up perfectly to bring me right where I am. It's crazy. I never could have designed it any better, but spiritual travel was definitely the first step or at least a major step in that direction. I've always had wild wanderlust and wanted to see the world. It's in my palm and my astrology. And when I was about eight and people asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, uh, it wasn't a teacher or a nurse like a lot of little girls. I wanted to be an interpreter for the UN because my eight-year-old little mind couldn't think of a way that someone like me, who wanted to see the world and needed to learn a lot of languages, could actually turn that into a job. When I was a young adult, I worked for an airline. We got free to very low-cost travel and I would go everywhere. I've seen 46 of the 50 states and started out going to the Caribbean every winter. The beautiful tropical beaches are unparalleled. And then I started branching out, and I hit Spain, Gibraltar, and Morocco, then Egypt. Egypt was a bumble. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't on my list. I was working a ton and needed a break. It was a spur-of-the-moment thing, and I was a belly dancer at the time, so I thought I wanted to go to the Middle East. I wanted to do the safe thing, but I didn't want to follow the crowd. So I was looking at exotic locations, but Egypt was just too easy and affordable to pass up. It was a no-brainer for somebody who didn't want to plan. So I ended up in Egypt. From the time my feet hit the ground, I was in absolute heaven. 
It was a delight to my senses, and I mean all the senses. I was overstimulated in every possible way. The sights, sounds, smells, taste, and touch, everything was different and exotic. You see, when you go on a spiritual adventure, you leave behind your job, your family, your friends, your home, your culture, and everything that makes you you. You just strip it all away. And then the pressure of being away from your comfort zone and having to think on your feet with all the freedom can expand you or break you, or both. And I think we all need to be broken open now and then. It keeps us growing. That's exactly what happened. Spiritual travel shows you who you are, what you need, and how you need to grow. It's like being resurrected. And that trip brought me back to life. It filled me with enthusiasm, appreciation, love, passion, curiosity. It showed me all those things were inside, and it set it all on fire. I think some of us are afraid of being on fire. I'm not quite afraid of it, but my set point is super chill. I don't get excited about things. And there were so many things in Egypt that were scary, new, irritating, and death-defying. If you've ever been in a Cairo taxi, you know what I mean. There is no way to keep that anger and fire inside. It erupted, and I used it to create, breathe, laugh, and love. Everywhere you go, the vendors are calling to you, Hey, lady, lady! If you turn and look back, they'll say, You dropped something. My heart. <laughs> and in the blink of an eye, your emotions go from one thing to another. And all the guys have the most expressive eyes. Egypt is a country where men and women are segregated. Guys don't just get to casually talk to women unless they're tourists. So they develop this way of speaking with their eyes. They can convey so much with their eyes. They make love to you with their eyes. And I had heard of that, but never experienced it until I was there. That gave me a whole new meaning to communication and made me think so much about the power of the gaze and how we're always communicating with our faces. It helped me to experience connection in a non-physical way. Some of those glances were far more intimate than touching could ever be and some of them were soul connecting, and some were violating. So permission and boundaries are always a good thing when you're in someone's space, mind, and soul that closely. Speaking of boundaries, Cairo is liminal space. The boundaries are very blurry there. I'm talking boundaries between rich and poor, alive and dead, now and then, to so all boundaries. For example, I was a belly dancer when I went on that first trip and I wanted to see belly dancers. So I go to this five-star hotel to see the hottest dancer in the world. In America, if you go into a five-star restaurant at the beach, in many places, you can go there with shorts on. Now, I didn't grow up that way. That just strikes me as some kind of wrong. It's the same at the opera or the theater. But in Egypt, they still have old school standards. So I dressed for the occasion, and I'm so glad I did. The glare from the bling was blinding. So I'm sitting there in this blinged out dining room of not more than 200 people, and the singer comes on. He's pretty close. It's a small dining room, and he invites a couple of young girls on stage with him. And they dance with him a little, and then he invites me up. And I wave him off like, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> I was still really shy then. Later, I find out that he's one of the biggest pop stars in the Middle East. It was like being asked to come on stage with Elvis, and I said no. <laughs> Trust me, I have never made that mistake again. 
And I was asked again on that actual trip to come on stage with the number two most famous dancer in Egypt. And I did get up on stage with her. But anyway, uh, you can never do that here. The line between rich and real people is, well, and it's non-existent. The celebrities there are real people. You see them. They interact with you like real people. I was in a souk one day shopping for belly dance costumes and I turned a corner and there was Hossam Ramsey. Now, for those of you who don't know, Hossam is a world famous drummer. He played with Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, Gypsy Kings, Peter Gabriel, Ann Dudley, and Jay-Z, just to name a few. So it was weird to just walk up and say, hey, Hossam. I mean, like that would never happen here. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the, the elite just live in a different stratosphere here in the West. So now I knew Hosan before that, but still I wasn't expecting to see him there having tea with the boutique owner. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, back to the hotel tour, leaving the hotel after this belly dance show. And I see people sleeping on the cold concrete in rags. In America, the poor are typically in certain parts of town where people with money never see them. In Egypt, everybody mingles with everybody in a way. And society is very classist, but people walk the same streets. So we're walking past this woman and her kids who are sleeping on the cold concrete. And the woman um, that I, the women that I'm with begin crying and pulling out the purses and to give the um, poor woman money. And the taxi driver who's waiting for us waves the poor woman and her kids off and says, don't worry about them, they're finished. We're like, finished? I didn't know what he was talking about. I wasn't sure if he was saying I have waved her off and now you don't have to be bothered with her or if he was saying she has no chance of survival anyway, so it's not worth your while to help her. And we were really disturbed by that. But that's one of the things that I think that makes spiritual travel so fascinating. Death is always a feature and we are never so alive as when death is near. That's why daredevils skydive and rock climb. That's why people with near-death experiences can change their entire lives afterwards. I think it's why some people who are always in crisis like drama more than they like wellness, so it feels alive. With every experience on that trip, I was always on the edge of something the edge of sleeping and waking, living and dying, loving and hating. Like in any third world country, the vendors harass you. They wanna make a sale and they wanna make the best sale for them. I'm not a shopper at all, and I can think of nothing worse than spending an hour bargaining for something, even if it's something that I want. So by the end of the trip, I've had it up to my eyeballs with the harassment, and I'm full of rage at this point. I just wanna be left alone. So that's percolating. And the land also is this liminal blend of masculine and feminine, young and old. Modern Cairo is very masculine. It's very busy, polluted, and full of people going about their business. The ancient energy can also be felt and it's feminine, slow, mysterious, and timeless. And they're both really strong and intense. They're both bursting all around you and within you. So it's hard to separate anything from there. Everything just is, and it's intense. I've never considered myself a very feminine woman. I absolutely think like a guy. I'm a tomboy. I've never been into girly things. But I found my inner female on that trip. Egypt watered the feminine seeds that lived inside of me and helped them to blossom. People have the wrong idea about females in Egypt. They may hide under tons of cloth, 
but trust that they have power. It's just a different kind of power. And despite not showing an ounce of skin, they know how to be sexy. If you've ever seen one of the black shrouded figures with the folds of her dress tucked just so, that it accentuates her bum as she's walking with a sway that rivals Marilyn Monroe's, you know what I'm talking about. The women are sexy. The men may have their eyes, but the women have their swagger. And the Egyptian women have a sexy confidence that I don't see in American women. Their hips move. And once I got into a conversation with a handful of people about what it means to have sex appeal. For me, it's not about having a fit body, although I admire that as much as the next person. It's about confidence. Confidence that shows in your gaze, your conversation, and the way your body moves. If your body is stiff and tight, it has no confidence. It's not ready or supple. If your hips don't move, and I mean a guy or a girl, the energy doesn't flow through the pelvic area easily and it shows restriction in your vitals. Now guys don't have a womb, but we all still have a pelvic area and this is where the seed of life comes from and where it's incubated. If this isn't juicy and flowing, there's no sex appeal. This ripples out into all areas of your life and gives it juice. It gives you the ability to appreciate the sunrise or to write poetry, or at least be inspired enough by the beauty to want to write it, even if you can't capture it in words. Sex appeal gives you desire. Desire is the fire of life that leads to curiosity, creativity, and birthing new things. Egypt is so fertile. The Nile once fed the world. So if you are in need of juices, it's a great place to rejuvenate. And that trip was definitely the start of my getting to know my femininity. I began to explore it and what it means to be female and the power of feminine energy. A lot of feminists think it's about outmaning a man or being equal of a man, and it's not. It's about being the complement. That's one reason why things are so out of balance. Women are men now. We have to be because it's every person for himself. We don't have intact families or communities. Women have to be the providers and protectors because we can't trust our males to do that for us. Since we have to do that, we aren't able to stand in our femininity well. So we're spread too thin. And everyone suffers. The family suffers. We can't have balance if we can't rely on each other. Nobody can be everything. I was talking to a single parent client about how hard it is to do everything alone. And I totally agree with her. People aren't meant to be alone. We're tribal. Every single parent um, having to be the whole tribe for their kids and themselves, and that's a very heavy load. It's not that way in Egypt, at least not what I saw. Islam makes sure that men take care of their wives and children. Now, I'm sure some people don't, but the social and religious structure is set up so that there is the expectation and the norm for that. You can't get married until you can support a wife and the family, and that's what I saw. So the first time I went to Egypt, we went to two weddings. Mind you, I didn't know a soul when the plane touched down other than Hossam Ramzi and my costume supplier. And we were acquaintances, not friends. And we were invited to, I think, three weddings, but only had time to go to two. Are you getting an idea how friendly people are and how open and willing they are to love? Yeah. So, one wedding was at the invitation of my costume supplier. It was a five-star hotel wedding. It was totally blinged out and huge. It was so loud and amazing. It was a celebration of life, um, a contract and a promise to build a future and a family together. 
and it was witnessed and celebrated by tons of people. The second wedding was a street wedding in Kano Khalili. Anyone could actually come, but we were invited and were up front with the bride and groom. It was a community affair. It's like when there is joy, everyone wants to share it. And it just kept on expanding and expanding. It's a really amazing experience to see that many people dancing and singing who may not even know each other. They just know that there's a wedding happening in the street and it's a good time. There's a sense of community in Egypt. People know each other. And even if they don't, they act as if they have an awareness of being countrymen. I saw a cab driver bump into another car. The drivers got out, raised their fist, yelled at each other, got back in their cars and kept on going. Nothing's all that serious. They have a saying, inshallah. Everyone says it all the time. It means if God wills it. And people really live by that. They have this deep trust in God, so nothing is ever seen as too terrible because how could it be if it's God's will? So if someone arrives an hour late for lunch, well, God willed it. The same is true for very big and small things. It keeps them really grounded and humble. So I'm seeing all of this and experiencing all of this, and my mind and heart are just blown wide open. Mind you, I haven't thought of home once in all this time. I've been way too occupied to think at all. I'm just in the moment the entire time being bombarded with so many things. Now, I'm not a Muslim, but the hotel was right across from a mosque, and the morning call to prayer would see me off to bed in the morning. And it was just such a haunting and sweet sound. It's the only time of day when Cairo is somewhat still. There's this voice wafting in the cool, dark sky, like you, God, and that voice are all that exist in the world. And there are so many moments just like that where I felt like I was having this deeply intimate experience, like life was offering me all this saucy bits while the gravy from the last time was still on my chin, you know what I mean? It was like I couldn't ever be hungry because I was being offered a buffet of such delightful and new things. On a later tour, I remember one of the gals saying, we're eating Egyptian food in Egypt. <laughs> and that's exactly what it was like. Food is food everywhere, but this was Egyptian food in Egypt. And music is joyous everywhere. But when you're on the hotel balcony overlooking the Nile and the bouncy pop music is coming from a felucca down below, it's far more intriguing. So a lot of what makes sacred travel special is that your mind is wide open and ready to receive all the things that you overlook at home. Seriously, it's that simple. You take you with you, and if you take all your baggage with you, you're probably gonna miss all that's on offer. And sometimes that happens. Or if you go to a place that reproduces home for your comfort, you probably won't get what you're after either. So here's what I mean. One time we decided to go to Mexico because one of my friends lived there, and we thought it wasn't fair to ask her to always come to us. So we decided to go see the spiritual sites of the Aztecs. And Cancun was our home base. So we stayed at an all-inclusive resort, and that was just like being at a hotel in the USA. Almost everyone we saw was from the Midwest. The food was American, and the bar was the big nightly attraction. I could have stayed at home for all that, you know what I mean? The noise in the crowd take away from the ability to connect to the energy, and it competes with it. And you have to be able to listen and to feel things to connect. So silence is imperative. I journaled like a madman every day in Egypt because it was all coming at me so fast that I feared I would lose all the inspiration, revelations, and magic. Funny thing, though, 
There was no way I could. I was so present in every moment. It was like it was etched on my brain. After that first trip, I was invited to co-host with someone who does spiritual uh, Egypt tours, and I jumped on that opportunity. See? Spirit has a way of giving us the experiences that we need to get to that next juncture. And I'm glad that I said yes, because what I experienced but didn't yet understand is that only people who share that indescribable experience with you will ever be able to understand it. So I can tell you about it right now, but only the people who are there really know what it's like. It's like you have your own language that only you know. On my first trip to Egypt, a friend heard I was going. She had two dance students who wanted to go to Egypt and she asked me if they could tag along with me. I said, sure. They arrived a day before me and met some English guys in our hotel bar the night before. Well, they were there working and had been there for like six or eight months without female company, so they offered to be our guides and escorts while we were there, and the girls agreed. I was thinking the British guys were the experts and would show us a lot of insider secrets, but we actually opened them up to an Egypt they'd never imagined. Of course, they knew some things too, and together we made incredible memories. I remain friends with one of the guys to this day. When you touch that deeply, it just goes into the bones and you never forget who was with you for the ride. So that's what I'm talking about. Spiritual travel does that for me every time. It's different now, it's evolved. In the beginning, it was like my fix. I dose up and it would last for me about a year and I have to go again. I didn't realize back then when I first started how important it is to use what I gained and to share it. In the beginning, it was just about having an amazing time. Over time, I also learned that the source of the fire isn't somewhere out there. It's inside all along. It's not about the sacred places. It's within all of us. We go to the places to remember, to commune, to dig a little deeper, to discover new places on earth and new facets within ourselves. People continue to have amazing experiences and learn the things I've learned and more. I think we all need to go on solo, silent, or group pilgrimages to intentionally let go of all the labels and identities that just put us in boxes so that we can experience different facets of ourselves. Or just be naked little babies like we were when we came into this world. When nobody knows you, they don't know your family, where you went to school, or what you do, it's like there's a blank slate and you can project whatever you want or just leave it wide open. When you have that much freedom and choice and then return home, it can be hard to put back on that suit of armor if that's what you were wearing before. It becomes hard to step back into the shoes that your mom designated for you if you are walking in her footsteps. I think we all want to be us, and spiritual travel frees me to do that. And when you do it with a group, the community is doing it together and supporting each other through their process. Community is what it's all about. There really is no point in having a luscious experience all to yourself. You gotta share it. So I sort of waxed on through this and didn't get to my points in any orderly way. So let me recap. (laughs) I said I was gonna tell you how spiritual travel helps you to let go. And it does that by stripping you of everything that makes you you. It gets you out of your comfort zone and surrounds you with love and light so that when you have the open space inside, that open heart, You can clearly see the wonder inside. In a lot of ways, a great pilgrimage will destroy you. It will take away all the crutches and masks and leave you as bare 
as you were when you came into the world. It takes away all the falseness and supposed tos. That might sound scary, and I suppose it is, but it's also freeing. You can do anything from there. You can live intentionally and authentically. So what do we do once you've got it? You let go. Well, that's where the real adventure begins, doesn't it? In the hero's journey, once the hero does what he set out to do, he has to come back home. That may be the hardest part. So you've had this incredible, life-changing adventure. How do you return to your old life and your old self? How do you relate to people who don't know all you've been through and haven't seen all the ways you've morphed to become who you are now? Like I said, do you put the armor back on and go back to business as usual? Do you live forever as an outcast, feeling like you've had an amazing experience in a different world that no one else can comprehend? I think we're meant to do a little in between. We use that experience to grow us and share the fairy dust with others to inspire them to awaken too. And I don't mean proselytizing because nothing is more annoying than that and everyone has their own path. I'm suggesting that if you have the greatest chocolate ice cream or spaghetti, what makes it even more special is to share it, feed it, grow it. If we attend to it, the fire never goes out. Moving from surviving to thriving is a process. To get there, we have to get moving. Spiritual travel does that for me like nothing else. And we're never done. If we're not cycling through the process over and over again, we're stagnating. So I hope you have some special way that you make that happen. And if you want to try spiritual travel with me, check out my website at largeoz.org. The trips for 2023 are not finalized yet, but you can get on the waiting list and be the first to be notified when they are. I have at least two trips per year. One is a tiny tour, which is more like a retreat because we go to fewer locations and spend a lot of time talking, walking, eating, being in the space and with nature and with each other. And the other one's a proper tour. Both are small. The big tour is not more than 16 people, so you get lots of space and personal attention. If you've already been on one and are still digesting the experience and want to make sense of the honey and hold on to it, that's what my tribe is for. It's for exploring you. You're welcome to check that out too. It's free and the information is in the show notes. So lots and lots and lots of people through the years have finished a tour and said, what now? How do I keep this self-discovery going? What do I do with all this curiosity now? How can I go back to the mundane world now that I've been to the mountaintop? That's what the tribe is for. It's for moving from surviving to thriving because you've actually seen what thriving looks like and you want to keep it. Anyway, last week, I told you all about my Twitter page. I had one lonely subscriber and I asked if we could double it and guess what it is today? I'm at five, woo! <laughs> I know for social media people, that's laughable. <laughs> but I consider it a win. And if you'd like to check that out, I think the link's on the show notes too. Um, and if you've been on a pilgrimage, let me know the highlights of your experience. I've shared my first journey with you. Now I want to hear about yours. Tell me in the comments. I'll see you next week, guys. Ciao. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help the podcast thrive, please share it with others. Post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from Laura Giles, you can follow her on all her socials at Laura Giles 804. See you next time.